Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace only because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, not based on our righteousness. There is no standing before you if we trust in our righteousness and good works because we are not by nature righteous and good, but whatever we are, it's only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and through whom we stand before you boldly. And we pray this morning that you speak to our hearts. We pray that you grab our attention. We pray that you direct our focus upon the person Jesus Christ who loved us and laid his life for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead. We pray, O oh Heavenly Father, that the result of this message would be that we draw closer to your heart, that our hearts would be enlightened, minds would be renewed, and we would be strengthened to live a life for the glory of your name and also according to your will. We pray that you be with us, O Lord. Destroy the works of the enemy who seeks to rob the word that will be sown. And we also pray that you destroy the deceitful desires of the flesh which often conflicts with the spiritful, spirit-led life. We ask you that you be with us this morning and speak to our hearts and enliven our souls and conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Make us lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us gazers on the person Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stay focused and avoid all distractions that we face in this world. We ask you that you be in control of our lives and of our minds and hearts and of the entire congregation. In the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. 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 We have seen the first chapter, a couple of sermons, and then we have also seen chapter 2. Now, when we look at chapter 3, we see that the author of Hebrews has not given up convincing his readers to focus on the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept on persuading his listeners. You know, one thing we need to understand that there is no such thing as blind faith in the Christian life. There is always reasonable faith in the Christian life. So the author here is giving reasons why the, the recipients and the congregation should focus on the supremacy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you look at these chapters 1 through 3, we see that the argument is from the greater to the lesser. It begins how Christ is the Son of God, speaking of His supremacy, speaking of He being the Creator, He being the heir, He being the ruler of all things, and He being also God equal to the Father. And then we have also seen how the author convinces his readers, coming little lesser, that Christ is supreme over the angels, who are seen as, you know, in the hierarchy, God is always the first, and angels are second. And now he comes to a little lesser in terms of human beings. He speaks about how Christ is superior over Moses. In order for us to understand the magnanimity of how Christ is superior to Moses, you need to understand the greatness of Moses. Without that, it doesn't make any sense why the author is speaking about 
Christ being superior over Moses. Now, if you read and know the Old Testament, it is apparent to us that Moses was the greatest and the most revered person in the history of Israel. Let me show to you some passages that help us understand how Moses was the greatest. The first is that Moses was the greatest deliverer of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Out of all the redemptive activities that we see of God in the history of Israel, God redeemed Israel from many bondages, from many enemies. But one pivotal on the peak of the success of how God redeemed his people stands his deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And he did that through Moses, who was known as the greatest deliverer of Israel. We see in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in the servant Moses. Why did they believe in the servant Moses? Because he was the deliverer in the hands of God to deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt. We also see that Moses was not only the greatest deliverer, but also the greatest prophet of Israel. We see that in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 to 8. Numbers 12, 6 to 8. And the Lord said, hear my words. The context here is that Aaron and Miriam were jealous against Moses and God was very angry. Do you know who this person Moses is? He tells to them, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, which is face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, God spoke to Moses. Clearly not in riddles, but he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. Not only that, furthermore, we see in Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him. For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for the mighty power and the great, on all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. We see that Moses was the greatest deliverer. He was the greatest prophet. And not only that, if you look at the infrastructure, the life and the climate and how the whole Israel functioned, we understand that they were all functioning under the law. And Moses was the lawgiver to Israel. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 14. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 14. And you made known to them, that is to the people of God, your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. 
every letter, every word given, inscribed in the law was given through Moses. He was the greatest lawgiver to Israel. Besides, we also see that Moses was the man of great character in Israel. He was the most godliest, intimate, God-fearing man that we see in the history of Israel. Numbers 12 verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, humble, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Wow. He was the number one meekest, godliest person than all people on the face of the earth. This was Moses. But as we go ahead, we should also understand that it is not Moses who did all these things by himself. It was the Lord who raised him as a deliverer and used him to deliver his people from the bondage of Egypt. It was the Lord who chose him to be his prophet. And it was the Lord who initiated to speak to him face to face. It was the Lord who used Moses to deliver Israel by performing great signs and wonders, which the history of Israel has never seen. And it was the Lord who shaped the character of Moses and made him humble and meek. So what I would like to say is, the glory goes to the God of the heavens and the earth who chose him, shaped him, broke him, molded him, and the glory doesn't go to Moses. Now imagine when you look at how Moses was the greatest deliverer, the greatest prophet, the great lawgiver, and the great man of character. Imagine how Israel viewed Moses. How they revered him among all the human beings on the face of the earth. So now the author has not given up. He has spoken about how Christ is the son of God. How he is superior to angels. Now he comes to the greatest man in the history of Israel. And he proves that Jesus Christ is superior even to Moses. And how is he superior? He gives three apologetic reasons how Christ is superior than Moses. The first we see that Christ Jesus had the supreme calling than Moses. Christ Jesus had the supreme calling than Moses. We see in Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. He says here, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Here, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he is known to be the apostle and high priest of our confession. Technically speaking, Moses was not the apostle. Moses was not the high priest. God chose Aaron and the family of Aaron to be the high priest. And later we will see how Christ being born in Judah can be justified as the high priest because the high priest should be coming from the lineage of Levi. We will look into that in the future sermons. For now, the author says that Christ is the apostle. Now hear this carefully. This is the only instance in the entire New Testament where Christ is called the apostle. For the first and the last time we see that 
Christ is the apostle. What is the meaning of apostle? Which in Greek is apostolos, which means sent one. He is sent by God on a divine mission. The author also says that Christ is the high priest. What is the role of the high priest? The role of the high priest is to mediate between God and people. It is the sins that obstruct the relationship between God and people. And the high priest atoned for the sins of people. He reconciled the people to God the Father. So what is interesting when we look at the author mentioning Christ being the apostle and the high priest is this. Hear this carefully. As an apostle, Christ came from God to people. As an apostle, Christ came from God to people. As an high priest, Christ brought people to God. He reconciled people to God. Now, we see here that if you look at the author, author, when we look at the book of Hebrews, we see that one of the major arguments of the author, the word of God, is to convince people that Christ is the high priest. We will look more into the glory and the beautiful ministry of the high priesthood later. But in all the three chapters so far, we see that in every chapter, the author speaks about the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that, for example, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The phrase here, purification for sins, speaks about the high priestly ministry which is attributed to the person, Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, we see here in chapter 2, verse 17, when we come to the next chapter, he speaks about the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We see that. Christ mentioned as a high priest in the first chapter. Only the work is mentioned, but the title was not attributed. For the first time in the entire book of Hebrews, we see that Christ is called the high priest in chapter 2, verse 17, where he is mentioned as the merciful and faithful high priest making propitiation for our sins. And the third time in the third chapter, we see in verse 1, Christ is mentioned here, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And it is said here that the Lord Jesus was faithful in all God's house just as Moses was. Moses also was faithful in his calling. In fact, number chapter 2, 12 verse 7, where the Lord himself gives testimony that he is faithful. We see today that a lot of people brag that I am faithful. Except the Lord who testifies or some other people testify. But here we see the testimony of the Lord himself. Moses was not speaking about himself. Hey, look at me. I am faithful in all God's house. Here the Lord himself. And I think that the greatest testimony and praise you and I ever receive is not from a pastor. Is not from your parents. Is not from anyone in the world. Even if the president of the United States of America says something about you, that is nothing. 
The greatest praise and testimony you and I would ever receive is from the mouth of the maker of the heavens and the earth. And that should be the craving and that should be the goal. And we see that Paul arguing and convincing Corinthians that it is not you you should commend yourself. It is the Lord himself who should commend you. Don't look for self-applause and people's applause, although to some extent it is good. But what it is to get all the praise and applause from people and the Lord is grieved by you. What good it is to get all the public attention and the Lord pays no attention because he knows your heart. Here we see that the Lord himself gives testimony about Moses in Numbers chapter 12 verse 7. He is faithful in all my house. Do you see that? Do you know that without this testimony, no one evidences that he goes to heaven. Listen to this carefully. I'm not telling qualifies. I'm telling evidences. If you read Matthew chapter 25, we see that all those who were faithful, the master of the house will tell. What will he tell? Come, you faithful and diligent servant, enter into your master's joy. So don't be satisfied thinking that, oh, that is to Moses. I don't mind if I don't get it. Listen to this. No person in the kingdom of heaven will be there without this testimony, good and faithful servant. And that should be the desire of us. I would like to just share, you know, when the Lord says faithful, faithfulness always has three qualities. If you and I pursue to be like Moses and Jesus, to be faithful, these are the three qualities. The first is that immediate obedience to the divine call, irrespective of the consequence you face for that. Immediate, Lord, it is you who said it. I don't care if I had to face loss, if I had to face rejection by people, if I had to pay, face the suffering. Doesn't matter. I obey you. Second, there are people who begin well, but they don't continue well. Our New Year resolutions speak about that. Consistent carrying out the divine responsibility. Despite all the challenges and the trials and temptations you face, you will say that, Lord, I persist in being faithful no matter what. Carrying out the divine responsibility. And finally, not only immediate obedience, consistent carrying out the divine responsibility. The third we see, faithful completion of the divine commission. Faithful completion of the divine commission. That's where we see good and faithful servant. I have given you, but you multiplied it. Enter into your master's joy. My challenge to you, brothers and sisters, do you pursue faithfulness? Do you faith pursue faithfulness? The world pursues success. Now hear this carefully. Brothers and sisters, success is the buzzword in the secular world. We are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. You may not be successful in the sight of the world. In fact, there may be none who knows your name. It doesn't matter. But in the eyes of God, are we faithful? What is the point of being successful, but don't have the testimony of being faithful? We see how Christ and Moses have fulfilled their supreme call. Christ called being supreme than Moses. We see first that Moses faithfully delivered from the bondage of Egypt. He faithfully delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. In contrast, 
Christ did a greater work. He delivered us from the bondage of sin through his atonement on the cross. We see that Moses faithfully led Israel through wilderness. You know, because I'm going through uh, the book of Hebrews, I'm reading the first five books of uh, the Holy Bible, the Pentateuch, and especially I began reading Leviticus, and I'm reading presently Numbers, and I've seen how many times the Lord was angry at the people's grumbling against him, and a couple of times, I've seen so far three times, the Lord tells to Moses, just get away from me, my anger, my fire would come upon the people, and I will wipe them off, and I will make you a great nation. But Moses pleaded with God and said, Lord, Remember what people will tell. Have mercy on them. Have grace towards them. Have compassion on them. And spare them. He was faithfully leading the Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. But Jesus faithfully leads us through trials and temptations. We will see that even further. The third we see that Moses faithfully brought Israel, observe the word, to the frontiers of the promised land. To the borders of the promised land. Because of his one disobedience. The Lord tells him that you are not supposed to enter into the promised land. Although he did not physically step. But the Lord had mercy on him I think. And he sent him along with Elijah. When Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. Moses must have felt very happy. When he stepped for the first time on the land flowing with milk and honey. God has fulfilled his desire on that day. But he was faithful in bringing Israel to the frontiers of the promised land. But Jesus faithfully returns to take us to his eternal home. And that's a beautiful comparison that we see between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the other reason the author gives how Christ is supreme. Then Moses, the second thing he says about is how Christ surpasses in his glory to Moses. We see that God glorified Moses. His face was shining like the bright sun. And so many things we see, but Christ exceeds him even more. We see Hebrews chapter 3 from verses 3 to 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is gone. Now if you observe these two verses carefully, to whom the word builder was attributed. We see in verse 4, we see in verse 3, that Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and the comparison he gives is, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. So we see here that Jesus is called the builder. And not only so, we see that even God the Father was called the builder in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So we see here that maybe implicitly we see here that Christ Deity is presented here because only if God is the builder of all things and if Christ is also the builder, then Christ is God. But what did Moses do here? We see here that Moses built the house. Moses was not the builder. Christ was the builder. 
God the Father was a builder, but Moses only built the house. We see that Christ also making this bold declaration in the gospel of six, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. I am the builder of the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The third apologetic reason we see that the author gives that Christ is supreme to Moses is that he had a superior identity. Identity is who you are. It defines who as a person you are. You see that in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 5. We see that. We see in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Do you see here? Moses was called a servant. Moses was never called a son. But Christ, it says, was faithful as a son over God's house. Moses was not only called a servant, it says that he became a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And one of the grand ministries of Moses was to give testimony to the coming Messiah. For example, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses predicted the coming divine greatest prophet. We see that Islam people or the teachers of Islam fallaciously, wrongly attribute this prophet, prophecy to the prophet Muhammad. When the Bible never testifies to that. When Moses predicted, we see that both the apostles and the Lord Jesus testify that what, was, what Moses spoke was about the coming Messiah. We see Acts 3, 22-23. Acts 3, 22-23. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from you brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The apostles evidenced, confirmed that what, the, what Moses, the greatest prophet of Israel spoke was in relation to the person Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself says in John chapter 5 verse 46. John 5 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote about me. Because these people claimed to believe in Moses, but they were refusing to believe in Christ. And he said that, if you really believe in Moses, you would believe in me, because Moses wrote about me. And where do you see that? One of the testimonies we see in the preceding verses that we have seen. But it says that Moses was a servant, testifying about the coming Messiah, but Christ was a faithful son of over God's house. Now, this is what we need to understand. Moses predicted about the Messiah. Moses gave the testimony. And Christ fulfilled the testimony as a son. And that is how the book of Hebrews begins. 
The book of Hebrews doesn't begin with the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews doesn't begin with the prophethood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with his sonship. You see in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, how the author of Hebrews begins proving that Christ is a son. It says here long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The title that the author gives to the Lord Jesus is that Christ was the son. Whom, which is the son, he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom, which is the son, also he created the world. He, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, the son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What a beautiful portrayal that we see of how Christ is superior than Moses. And after speaking to his audience and the recipients about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same passage we also see, which brings me to the second section of the sermon, that is that the identity of believers in Christ. Whatever we have is because of the person Christ and what he has given us. We see in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. You just read this people. How glorious these words are. We feel happy right when someone says. Hey you look handsome man. Or when someone says you are beautiful. Or when someone says you are intelligent. Or when someone says you are great. But let me tell you people. All this fall to nothing compared to the identity the maker of the heavens and the earth gives to us. You see the author, how it begins in verse 1. He says that, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. He says here, holy brothers. Do we anyone call, hey holy brother, how are you doing? You feel a little mockery of it, right? Are you insulting me here by calling me holy? Because we always think that holiness is a personal achievement. Now hear this carefully, brothers and sisters. In the Bible, holiness is not essentially your personal achievement. It is the imputation of God's righteousness on us through the person, Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness means set apart for God. Bought for God. And it is not in relation to personal achievement, but only in relation to Christ's glorious, sanctifying work on the cross for the sins. So when someone says to me, hey, Stephen, you are holy, it is not because I am doing a better moral performance. It is because you are the blood-bought child of the living God. And it says here that, brothers, which is the most used title for the people of God. Mentioned more than 200 times. Brother, brother, brother. Now there are three aspects that we need to understand. When the Bible says holy brothers. That you are the brothers. The first thing is that you are the children of God. You become brothers 
only because of being the children of God, which is in relation to God. God has gave you birth. You are born of God. It is God who regenerated you. And he has given you the greatest identity. You know, when I look at people today, one great crisis that we see, so many believers are struggling, is identity crisis. And they want to imitate the world to gain that identity. I want to be like those people. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, listen to this carefully. The greatest identity God has given us, that we being the children of the living God. And that is only the gracious act of God that has given to us. Brothers not only speaks that we are the children of God, it also speaks that we are the siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have learned in the previous sermon that in chapter 2, Christ calls us what? It says that in chapter 2 verse 11, He is not ashamed to call them brothers, which also includes the name sisters in that a general name for both the brothers and sisters. People just think about that. I am a child of the living God. For a lot of people, it doesn't make any sense. For them, the greatest excitement is that I am a child of the president of America or I am a child of Jeff Bezos or the child of Bill Gates. Those things actually make us more exciting. But what is that Bill Gates? The Bible says he brings the princes to nothing. Today are there and tomorrow they are gone. Their success is not forever and ever. Like the flower that fades away, the glory of the man fades away. But the identity that God gives us lasts forever. And it says that we are the children of God and Jesus is our elder brother. He calls us, he is not ashamed to say that you are my brother, you are my sister. It not only speaks about children of God, siblings of Christ. It also speaks we are brothers and sisters in the church in relation to one another. Literally, you know, the word brother means you are born from the same womb. Although we have different fathers and different mothers, when it comes to our identity in Christ, we have the same father. It is the same Holy Spirit from the womb of the Holy Spirit that we have been born again. What a great calling and identity that God has given to us. And it not only says here that therefore holy brothers, he gives us another identity. You know what is that? You who share in a heavenly calling. You who share in a heavenly calling. He doesn't say that. You may. We don't know how you will be in the future. You may share in the heavenly calling. There is no suspicion here. A lot of people, when they read the book of Hebrews, they always struggle with suspicions. It, is, it has a lot of warnings, so they read it, always doubting the salvation. Can salvation be lost? But here we see that the author undoubtedly says that you who share in the heavenly calling, which means you are heirs of the kingdom of God. You are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Heaven is your home. And you will be partakers of the new heavens and the new world and the new creation. Although you will be disappearing from this world, you live forever in the kingdom of God. The entire Hebrews echoes this. For example, we see that in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10. Hear this. Mark this. This should really encourage us, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't worry how your home is now. Don't worry if you don't have your own home. Because we are having the most glorious eternal home because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. It says that Hebrews 11 verse 10. 
for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The architect and the builder is God. Here we see the designers and the builders are people. And all those houses are going to be crumbled. Everything is going to be destroyed by fire. But the heaven that God gives us, the city that God gives us, God is the architect. Imagine people, if people by the wisdom of God can create such beautiful apartments and the beautiful houses, if God himself designs it, imagine how stunning, thrilling the new heavens and the new worlds will be. It says that we are all looking forward to that city. Are we looking forward to the city? Does that speak about the condition of our heart? Or are we only settling our hearts on the city of Hyderabad or wherever the city it is, thinking that this is my city? Hebrews eleven sixteen it says, but as it is, they desire a better country. People, India is not better. America is not even better. Europe is not at all better. Nothing is better in this world. There is a better country. We are all looking forward and that is the kingdom of heaven. But as it is the desire of a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Wow! There is a city awaiting us. There is a home awaiting us. There is a glorious, beautiful, eternal place awaiting us. And the Bible encourages to set our hearts on that heavenly calling. And you are going to share in that beautiful heaven that is in store for us. We also see in Hebrews 12 verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, figuratively speaking, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Wow, we will be looking at angels and they will be maybe our neighbors and our friends and they will be all around. And you may be saying, hey, Angel Gabriel, how are you doing? I heard about you a lot when I read the Bible and I'm so glad to meet you in person today. We'll be meeting all our heroes and heroines. Abraham, Paul, Daniel, David. We will be meeting Ruth, Esther, Sarah, Mary Magdalene, Aquila and Priscilla. Wow, what a great joy will be when we look at their faces. And that is what we are all going to take people. You know why? The only reason you and I are qualified for heaven is not because of our moral performance. It's only because Christ propitiated for our sins. There is no greater qualification than that. I might have written some books. I might have spoken in different countries and different pulpits. I might have been used by God to touch millions of lives. It doesn't matter. The only reason I go to heaven is because of the finished work of Christ and the cross. Nothing that I do will ever add to my identity and status in the kingdom of heaven. You know, we all book a flat, right? Some of you have done that uh, recently. Vinod's family has given us a great trade. And they have booked this flat two years ago I think as I remember Vinod mentioning two years ago he booked it and what was he waiting for in all these two years when will they give me the keys when will they hand over the house to me so that me and Vanilla, Jocelyn all of us would have a grand warm welcome you know I think when we go to heaven no one will have a warm welcome your housewarming why everyone will have a house who will come, us, come to us actually 
But you know, when he booked it, he was waiting for them. People listen to this carefully. There is both a home for you. He has booked it. Christ said that. I am going back and prepared the mansions. I'm going to come for you. I have booked a flat for you, a mansion for you, incomparable to anything in the world here. Are you waiting for that hand, for the house to be handed over to us? Christ is waiting to hand over the key to us. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Kiran. Hey, Spurti. My daughter, this is the house that I prepared for you. This is yours. And there is no lease for that. It is forever. <laughs> what a great joy it is that we have this great assurance and the identity. And the Bible says in a metaphoric language here that we are the house of God. It says that we are holy brothers. We are sharing in the heavenly calling. And it says that in chapter 3 verse 6 it says we are his house. Now hear these people carefully. We always love houses. And when we think about houses, we always think about the material building, right? We don't care about people. We love material building. But you know one thing? God cares a foot about material building. He cares for people. For God, the greatest house is you and me. For God, the greatest temple is you and me. He doesn't take delight in the buildings and the material things constructed by man. He takes delight in the people of God. And the Bible tells you that we are his house. 1 Peter 2, 5 confirms, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are the house of God, people. We are the people of God. We are the temple of God. And we are partaking in this heavenly calling. Now hear this carefully, brothers and sisters. A very important element that I want to highlight here. Hear this carefully. You know what is that? When the Bible says holy brothers, it is in the context of plurality. When the Bible says you are God's house, it is in the context of plurality. When the Bible says you are partaking or sharing in the heavenly calling, it is in the context of plurality. Which means when God makes us his house, he made together as a people, not as an individual. When God gives us his heaven, it is as a community, not as an individual. When God says, you are my child, it is not just as an individual, but most importantly, as a corporate community. Christ did not die for one individual, which is true, but he died for the community. And why am I telling this? Because God is community-centered. And we should be living our Christian life. Listen to this carefully. You will not see your wife in heaven if she is not a believer. You will not see your husband if he is not a believer. You will not see your child if he is not a believer. But you will see every brother and sister in the heaven because they are bought not by human blood, by the, but by the blood of the Lamb. And listen to this. We are an eternal community. Our profession is not an eternal profession. Our family is not an eternal relationship, although that is greatly important. But church, we see that is an eternal community of God. Now hear this carefully. Together, we are a community of dignity. Will you repeat with me? Together, we are a community of dignity. What is a dignity? Children of God, siblings of Christ, Brothers and sisters, 
partakers of the heavenly calling, God's house, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We see that Ephesians 2.19 confirms, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens to one another, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now this is who we are, my dear brothers and sisters. Now let us come to the final section of this passage. Now, whatever we have listened today, it doesn't say anything what you should be doing. It only says how Christ is supreme over Moses. And it just says who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, your identity. Now comes our obedience, our calling. Now God calls us. Now what do we see here? Now, one thing that I would like to highlight here as you have been listening sermons from chapter 1, now, we see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the author begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, we must pay careful attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, why did he say therefore? In light of whatever he spoke about Christ in the first chapter, he being the son of God, he being supreme over angels, he now calls therefore. That is the reason I tell you, brothers and sisters, God's word never ever calls us to blind belief. It always gives us reasons why we should believe in God. And it says here, therefore, which means whatever is said before in Hebrews 1, you have to pay careful attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So when you look at Hebrews chapter 1, it especially speaks about who Christ is. Who Christ is. Now, when we come to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he again begins with the word what? What is the word that he begins with? Therefore, he says, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, he says. Consider Jesus. It says here that, consider Jesus, the author and high priest of our confession. Now, why did he use the word again, therefore, here in verse 1? He says that in light of what Christ did in the preceding chapter. Now, if you, if you have read and if you have listened carefully, what I preached about Christ from chapter 2 from verses 5 to 18, we see what Christ accomplished, right? We see that he delivered us from the fear of death. He propitiated for our sins. He made us sons of the glory. We have seen a lot of things what Christ did. And therefore, he concludes here that based on what Christ did in chapter 2, particularly from verse 5 to 18, this is what you should be doing now. Now, you know something that is very interesting? If you want to be a good interpreter of the Bible, one of the most important principles of Bible interpretation is observe the indicatives and observe the mandates. Commands. Indicative means it doesn't command you anything. It only points what is already there. It is there. You just see that. Oh, this is what it is. Mandate is it commands you to do something. You know what is interesting? If you have read chapter 2 from verses 5 to 18, which is 13 verses, long passage, there is not a single command in that entire passage. Not a single command about what you have to do. 
It only speaks about what Christ does and what Christ did. Only. You observe that carefully. After speaking about the indicatives about what Christ is and what Christ did, now he comes to the mandate, the command about what you should be doing. Based on who Christ is in the previous chapter. And he doesn't just end up there. He again gives the reasons why you should consider Jesus. He speaks about he is the apostle, he is the high priest, and he is superior to Moses. And throughout the book, he keeps on giving reasons why you should look to Jesus and never lose your focus. Now the call is what? The call, he says, is what? In two words. And that is the title of the message. And what is that? Consider Jesus. Now he gives the command. You have listened about who Christ is. You have listened what he did. Now you know what he should do? It's not that I just, I hear it, I think about it and that's it. No. He calls us now to consider Jesus. You know the Greek meaning is pay careful attention to Jesus. Keep your utmost focus on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, have deep contemplation upon the person, Jesus. Jesus should be the person who, whom you should be gazing at. Now when, when, when the author is talking about gaze at Jesus or focus on Jesus, he's not speaking about just think about Jesus being anything and focus on him. That is what we see in the New Age philosophy today. He can be anything. He can be the Jesus of Islam or the Jesus of Hinduism or the Jesus of the cults or the Jesus of Christianity. It doesn't matter. As long as the person named Jesus is there, just think about that. That is not the rubbish, foolish argument that the author is making here. He's saying that when you consider Jesus, it should be based on the biblical revelation of who he is and what he did. You can't focus on any other kind of Jesus. That the world cooks up. No, there is the revelation that we find. And that is what he is arguing in chapter 1, chapter 2. This is who Jesus is. This is the Jesus you should consider. Not the Jesus of your personal feelings. Not the Jesus of cultural dictations. Not the Jesus of people's opinions. This Jesus is a Jesus revealed by God the Father through the word, by the Spirit to us. This is the Lord Jesus Christ that you should consider. And if you lose your focus on the person Christ, you're gone. There is no Christianity without the person Christ. There may be words, there may be doctrine, there may be activities, but without the person Jesus Christ, there is nothing to speak about Christian life. And the author is calling here, consider Jesus. Now he is not speaking to unbelievers here. There may be some unbelievers here. He is essentially speaking to believers. Consider Jesus. Gaze on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Why? Because there is a constant temptation as you live your Christian life to lose your focus on the person Jesus Christ. And that is a battle you have to fight every day. I've been living my Christian life for more than 25 years. And if you ask me, Brother Stephen, what is one of your greatest battles? I tell that my greatest battle every day is to gaze on Jesus. 
Because there are many distractions in this world that captivates my attention and makes me to lose my focus on my Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to fight for that. That is the calling of every believer. That is your calling, my dear brothers and sisters. God is calling you today. Gaze on Jesus. Who is your focus? As the song says, be thou my vision. What is your vision? What is your wisdom? Where is your strength? Where is your focus? Where is your hope? Is it Jesus or something else? I'm reminded uh, of, uh, you know, a beautiful illustration from the Bible, which has happened really in the gospel of Matthew chapter 14. When he saw the Lord Jesus Christ walking on the water, Peter was so fascinated. How is it that the person can walk on the water? And he says, the Lord, can I come to you? I want to walk on the water. Can I come? The reason why Peter walked is only because of one statement. Come. Actually, Peter did not walk on water. He walked on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ commanded to him, come. And he walked as long as he was looking at Jesus and walking on the water, he was safe. But you see, the word says here, but when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind turning his eyes away from the Lord Jesus Christ, when he saw the wind, what is it that conquered his heart? The Bible tells you that he was afraid. Hear this carefully, brothers and sisters. No one looking at Jesus will ever be afraid. All fear comes as a consequence of not looking at Jesus Christ. And look at the circumstances. It says that when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And what did he do? It says that he, was, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The same thing the author of Hebrews is persuading his, repent, his, his recipients have faith. Focus on him. Cling on to him. Hold fast unto him. Brothers and sisters, I would like to give you an encouragement from this passage. Amidst the pain, loss and suffering that you experience in your life, life is not always the same. Your happiness today will turn into terrible times tomorrow. Your terrible times today may turn into happy times tomorrow. Each day is never the same. You know how many painful, surprising news you have listened, which you have never thought. Every week, I keep listening surprising things. Sometimes joy, sometimes grief. But we have to go through the loss and sickness and suffering and pain. But amidst all this, the Bible says, gaze on Jesus. You can't survive without looking unto him, people. Amidst the temptations to sin, so many temptations we are flooded and allurements in this world. The Bible calls us the only way you can survive in the temptations to sin and allurements of the world is by looking to Jesus. Gaze on Jesus. Amidst the spiritual activities, the Bible calls us to gaze on Jesus. You know, sometimes you may pray and lose your gaze on Jesus. You may read the very word of God and the God of the word is not the focus. And you may have a very quiet time and say that, I have read the Bible, I have prayed, but did you behold the glory of the Lord? Did we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
You may be lost in the church. You may be sitting in the church, which is the church of the living God. And amidst this, all these songs that people are singing, even singers also may lose their focus on God. In leading songs. A preacher may lose his focus on God by preaching about God. That is a tragedy of the spiritual activities that we do. You may lose your sight and gaze on Christ and be very active in doing spiritual activities. But what are those spiritual activities if God and Christ is not your gaze? It is only religion. It is ritual. It is not what Christ expects from us. The Bible calls us amidst the daily busy activities, brothers and sisters, don't lose your gaze on Christ. Yes, we have jobs to do. We have family chores to do. We have travels to do. We have groceries to buy. There are so many things that every day our life is inundated, repleted with so many activities. But the Bible calls us gaze on Jesus in your daily activities. Don't lose your focus. Or else you will be sinking in the world as Peter sank in the waters. Amidst the hostile cultural pressure, the Bible calls us to gaze on Jesus. We are living in a hostile culture, people. The morality is against biblical morality. The claims that we see is against biblical claims. And the Bible calls us focus on Jesus. You may be ridiculed by saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only Lord of the heavens and the earth. You may face rejection because of your statement. Because the culture loves inclusivism, pluralism, not exclusivism. But Bible is exclusivism saying that Jesus is the only way, truth and life. And we have to fight against it. And we are also surrounded by so many different Jesus. The prosperity gospel preaches the different Jesus. The hyper grace preaches different Jesus. The Mormons preaching different Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses preaching different Jesus. Amidst the false doctrines, the Bible calls us to focus and gaze on biblical Jesus. Don't lose your focus. And hear this carefully, my dear brothers and sisters. Amidst the sound doctrinal teaching, don't lose your gaze at Jesus. I may do systematic theology and master all the branches of systematic theology, angelology, doctrine of God, and soteriology, hamatiology, eschatology, ecclesiology, all those logies you may master and lose your gaze on the person, Jesus Christ. There is no devotion. Many people you find today, they, they utter doctrines, they, they speak about the word of God like that. I know John 3.16, I know 1 John 3.16, I know what Proverbs 11.12 says. I can by heart say what Psalm 119.176 says, but they don't have any gaze on Jesus. And that's the danger that we are living in. And people listen to this carefully. The Bible tells that we are in a spiritual warfare. The devil is constantly, whether you are focusing on Jesus or not, let me tell you, the devil and his demons are 25 by 7 focusing on you. Do you know that? And their only target is to cause everything possible for you to lose your focus and gaze on Jesus. And he's happy with your church life. He's happy with your quiet times. He's happy with your job. He's happy with you being a good husband and a good wife and a good child. Happy with being a good church member when you're gazing not on Jesus Christ. No. As I come closer, I want to tell you something. Much of the failure, I think before that I need to tell you. You know the difference between glance and gaze? 
Glance is something, it is for a little moment, you just look at it. Gaze is a deeper concentration. Now hear this carefully. Much of the failure in Christian life is due to glancing at Jesus and gazing on the world and yourselves and your situations. Much of the failure in the Christian life is due to glancing at Jesus and gazing at the world. Gazing at yourself, gazing at your situations, that's the major reason of failure. And the Bible calls us, gaze at Jesus, or else you will be sinking in this world. You know, there is an observation that I want to make. There is a clause. We are coming to one controversial thing before we come to close. You know what is a controversial thing? But before that, I want to tell you, observation about Christ's sovereignty here, which is very important. If you don't understand this, you don't understand what I'm speaking later. You know what is that? It says here in Hebrews chapter 3 verse, uh, sorry, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16. You know what it says? For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, who are children of Abraham through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, he's telling he helps the people of God. He helps the children of God, Christ. And I have explained to you in my previous sermon, when it says help, in the Greek, it literally means he holds us fast. He holds us. He holds us. He holds us. Which speaks about his sovereignty, and which is a great encouragement to us, knowing that Christ holds us fast. And that's the reason we sing that beautiful song, one, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. But people listen to this carefully. Bible doesn't just speak about Christ's sovereignty. Now it speaks about our responsibility here. You cannot just be passive, inactive, lukewarm, lazy. Christ holds me fast till the end. I can be on the bed till 9 o'clock. I can be sluggish rather than slogging. I can just live the way that I want. You are fooled by the devil. As much as the Bible speaks about the sovereignty of God, it speaks about the responsibility of man, and that is what we see in verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. You know what it says? And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You need to hold fast. Yes, Christ holds us fast. But the Bible also encourages that you need to hold fast, not lightly, people. Do you understand what lightly is? Loosely. You cannot live your Christian life and survive your Christian life if you loosely, lightly hold on to Christ. It says, hold fast, run to Him, gaze on Him, and cling to Him. Because there are a lot of enemies in this world. People, listen to this carefully. This is a very encouragement that I want to give you, and I love this. Hear this carefully. Believers, perseverance in Christ, which is believers holding fast to Christ, is dependent on Christ's perseverance of believers. Wow. You know what gives me the confidence that I can hold fast to Christ? Because Christ holds me fast. You know what gives me the encouragement that I can persevere in Christian life? Because Christ perseveres with me. My perseverance comes from Christ's perseverance of me. And that is the hope I stand strong. And I want to 
go forward it says here that we need to hold fast to our confession it says that christ is the apostle and the high priest of our confession what confession confession speaks about who christ is the author of hebrews speaks about christ is the son of god christ is supreme christ is lord christ is king christ is high priest christ is our eternal life you need to hold fast to who christ is and you know what it says here hold fast to our confidence don't lose your confidence you know what is a confidence your very st- confidence is not that somewhere in the mind you believe about something that is that is not biblical confidence confidence gives you the strength to live your everyday life i know this i know who christ is and the confidence that i have the confidence about who christ is which speaks about the internal assurance confidence speaks about the internal assurance and then he speaks here boasting in our hope which speaks about the external proclamation which is the gift of eternal life and the eternal home that god has given to us brothers and sisters listen to this carefully the only thing that keeps you to persevere in christ is when your eyeballs are sealed with eternity you hardly listen to this carefully even in ecclesia i'm talking about you hardly come across people today even in aef whose eyeballs are sealed with eternity every day they are lost many people are lost in the world we are lost in the church with no christ being our gaze you know very well you know very well look into your heart where is your eyes where is your focus what is your vision what is your passion what is it when you examine it's all about my life my job my family everything just like the people of the world and christ said that do not worry about all these things for the gentiles of the world pagans who don't know god run after all these things but you as a child of god seek my kingdom and my righteousness what is a kingdom the kingdom that god is going to give us seek it and all these things will be added unto you but we fools run after all these things losing our focus on the kingdom of god now here is a caution that it said here you know what it says it says here that if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope now here we see the controversial thing if indeed means what people think it is a conditional salvation which is you have to do something which is you are saved by faith and later you are saved by works so you need to really save yourself every day christ saved 2000 years ago and you are saved when you believed in the lord jesus but now you need to really work out your salvation and try to save yourself you know there are even in colossians 122 to 23 paul says the same thing it says that if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard we see that based on warning passages like this there are three views that has come out one is the loss of salvation view and one of the prominent person is david pawson some of you are fans of him some of you know he is a good bible teacher but i strongly believe he is wrong in this area david pawson he is a good bible teacher and author but he is erroneous in this thing he believes that believers can lose their salvation does that mean he says that does that mean christians could lose their salvation and be lost eternally if they go on doing these things if they go on in their former life after they are christian yes i am afraid it does 
He believes that you can lose your salvation. And there is another thought, which is also, I believe, is dangerous, which is easy believism. Charles Stanley, In Touch Ministries, is a very popular Bible teacher. You constantly see him on YouTube and the channels. Charles Stanley, he makes a very dangerous statement here. You know what he says here? Even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is not in jeopardy. That is, your salvation is secure. And at last he says that, which is very contrary to what author of Hebrews says, if indeed you hold fast to your confidence, he says that, and last, believers who lose or abandon their faith, even if you lose your faith in Christ and say that, I don't believe in Christ anymore, he says that their salvation is secure. For God is faithful. I believe it is rubbish. Both, both the people are wrong. David Pawson is wrong. And even Charles Stanley is, is wrong. I believe in the test of genuineness. And C.S. Lewis Johnson is a good theologian and pastor, reformed pastor and theologian. He says here, he gives a very good explanation. There are two reasons why the word if is used. Hear this carefully. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, why are these ifs in the Bible? Why if? He says that there are two reasons. The first reason is there are many people who, even over the years, Make a profession of faith, but who fall away, who evidence they were not really true believers. A person can be in the church without being in Christ. They may rise up and utter church covenant and rise up and give lip service to the doctrines of the church. They may read the Bible. They may pray, never experiencing regeneration. And when you see them going away, you think that these people are losing their salvation. When in fact, they were never believers. And such people will be exposed in the long run, particularly through difficulties and suffering. They show that they were never believers. The second reason it says that, why warning passages and ifs are there. And with reference to the saints, it helps them to remember that God's warnings and admonitions are often means for the preservation of us by causing us to be more diligent in our Christian activity. Which means, the other reason why Bible gives us a warning passages and uses the word ifs is, you should not take your salvation for granted. Thinking that I'm going to heaven so I can live the way that I want to live. No, these warning passages should stir us up to work out our salvation, not for salvation, but live out the salvation with fear and trembling. And that is the reason. Sometimes I pray to God, Lord, I don't want to perish in sin. I know my salvation is secure. But I also know that if I live a blatantly sinful life, that evidences that I was never a believer. And I pray that Lord save me from perishing in sin. Not always, but sometimes, knowing that I have to be careful and diligent in the Christian life. So what I want to say is this. The word, if is not used to cast suspicion that you will lose your salvation. It is to give you encouragement and assurance to persevere in faith. Stand strong. Fight. Don't give up. Run the race till the end. Many, many distractions are there. So many things fill your mind and divert your attention. Focus, focus, focus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I want to just close with what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. What a great encouragement it is. Shall we all read this together? And may this be true of us, my dear brothers and sisters. What Paul confessed, this is not an apostolic confession. This is a believer's confession, which we all ought to be making in our Christian life. Shall we all read this together? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, 
there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. People, Christian life is not a life of flirting with the allurements of the world. It is a life of fighting against sin, trials, and temptations that is constantly distracting your mind. It's a fight. Only fighters will live the Christian life. Cowards, victims will disappear sooner or later. The question that you need to be asking is, am I a fighter? And you can only fight well till the end. Like Paul, you can say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. The end of the race is more important than the beginning of the race. You can only survive till the end knowing who Christ is. That is what the argument of Hebrews is. Knowing your identity in Christ, that you are sharing the kingdom of heaven, you are a child of God, and you are the house of God. And most importantly, by gazing on Jesus. If you lose your focus on him, I'm not telling you will lose your salvation. That's not what I'm telling. I'm telling that you will either evidence that you were never a believer or you will persevere till the end because your perseverance speaks about evidences that you have been truly a Christian. So I want to tell here, if there are any unbelievers here living a namesake life, attending the church, coming here, singing songs and all, but never ever had that personal relationship with Jesus because Christianity is not a religion of rituals. It is a faith of personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you don't have it, I call you today. Repent of your sin. Gaze on Jesus. Your religion, your activities, your morality, your spirituality will not save you. Only Christ can save you. And if you are a believer, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, fight. Every day fight. Rise up from your bed as a fighter. Live through the day as, your, as a fighter. Go to bed as a fighter. Don't be a loser. Don't be a coward. Don't be a victim. Be a fighter as Paul was and as Bible tells us. And you can only fight not by doing activities, attaining information, which is good. But most importantly, by gazing on the person, Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of a battle that has happened where Greeks fought against Persians. And they, after many, many days, finally they won the battle. And there was a man who wanted to pass this news, running to Athens and announcing that the Greeks have won the battle. And uh, he was in such a great excitement that he was running, running. But on these days, there were no vehicles. They had to run and run. He ran night and day through the sun, through the storms, through the wilderness. He ran and ran and ran and ran. And after a couple of days, he appeared in Athens. And he stood before the magistrates and he said, Rejoice, we have won. And he fell dead. People die like that. <laughs> die in a way that you have won. And not as a person who is defeated because Christ is a victor. Shall we all rise on our feet and pray together? Pray together, Lord. People, please understand 
Your biggest problem is not that your children are distracting you, your wife and husband are distracting you. It's not about your job. It's not about all the things that you think about. The biggest distraction is losing your gaze on Jesus. And everything else, consequence, anxiety, discouragement, fear, all these things is because we glance at Jesus and gaze on the world. Let us arise and say, Lord, may I gaze on Jesus. Not be lost in any of the spiritual activities, in any of the daily activities, but stay focused on Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning that Christian life is a life of a fight. It is not a life of entertainment. It is not a life of fun. It is not a life of easy, cozy, comfortable living. Lord, if we really follow Christ, we understand it's a warfare. There are a lot of distractions in our daily life. And that's why your word calls us to gaze upon Jesus. Lord, in all our sickness, in all our loss, in all our pain, in all our suffering, in all our temptations, in all our mundane daily activities, in all our spiritual warfare, in all our spiritual activities, Lord, may we never lose our focus on Jesus. Let Jesus be our vision. Let Jesus be our passion. Let Jesus be our strength. Let Jesus be our hope. Let Jesus be our encouragement. Let Jesus be the very life that we live every day. Let Jesus be the breath of every moment of our life. Only a life fully devoted to the Lord Jesus, gazing upon Jesus, will live a life of full satisfaction, full joy, full happiness, full excitement, full victory, full energy for the glory of the living God. Or else, O oh Lord, we will be sinking into the miseries of the world. Pray that you encourage all the brothers and sisters here to gaze upon Jesus. May the Spirit of God captivate our attention to gaze upon Jesus. And all those who are not saved, living a nominal life, living a mere church-going life, strike them and open their eyes and bring them to the cross and save them by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Lord, as I close this prayer, and as we get on to another activity and different activities today and tomorrow, Lord, our humble plea is that you give us the grace and hold us fast to gaze on Jesus. May we never lose sight of him and sink into the world. May we fight a good fight and finish the race and be among those good and faithful servants of yours. In Jesus' name, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog www.messageforourage.blogspot.com I repeat www.messageforourage.blogspot.com you may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail.com. I repeat, c-s-t-e-p-h-e-n-d-a-v-i-d at g-m-a-i-l dot c-o-m. Grace and peace be to you.